Welcome to another podcast of The Apologist Bookshelf. I'm Gary Zacharias. I wanted to look this time at a booklet rather than a book, The Ambassador's Guide to Islam. And this is a series, one of a series of booklets put out by Stand to Reason, and that's Greg Kokel's organization. I highly value it, and I trust their material. And they put out a series of booklets that are easy to read. Uh, They're under 100 pages, uh, pretty cheap. And you ought to get the whole set of them now. They've got one on Mormonism and postmodernism, the new atheists, homosexuality, and this one on Islam. The the author is Alan Schleeman, S-H-L-E-M-O-N, Alan Schleeman. You can find some of his uh, YouTube uh, debates and lectures and all. Uh, Great guy. He's come to our apologetics class. And what he's going to do in this booklet is three things. He's got three main chapters here. Let me share those with you. Part one is a closer look at Islam. You know, what, what is there about Islam? Is its history and things like that? Part two, a strategy for reaching Muslims. Really important. And then part three are frequently asked questions. And I wanted to share with you something before I get into the chapter I'd like to look at. And it's right at the end. It's the first appendix. And what he does, using the Quran. He challenges the Muslim claim that the Bible, especially the New Testament, has been changed or corrupted. That's a big standard argument for Muslims. Well, you can't trust what's in there because it's been corrupted. But just using the Quran, Alan can say this. It's a syllogism. Number one, the Quran says the words of God cannot be changed or corrupted. Number two, the Quran says the Bible is the word of God. Three, Therefore, on the Quran's authority, the Bible could not have been changed or corrupted as many Muslims claim. Isn't that a great uh, argument? You get it right from the Quran itself, and he gives you all the places to go to in, in the Quran. So you can actually sit down with a Muslim and read these passages. So great argument. Number one, the Quran says the words of God can't be changed or corrupted. The Quran says the Bible is the word of God. Therefore, the Bible, based on the Quran, the Bible couldn't have been changed or corrupted. Okay, so let's pick up. I want to do chapter 3, part of chapter 3, and that is frequently asked questions. He, he was saying that, you know, in many talk shows, you get people standing up saying, well, I'm Muslim, and here's what the Muslims believe. I'm a scholar, and I've studied uh, Islam, and this is what they believe. He says, well, he said, wait a minute. What matters most is authority. Some sources are authoritative when it comes to Islam, and some aren't. He says, people can say what they want about Islam, but if those claims are sound, they have to square with Islam's three authoritative sources. What are they? The Quran, Hadith, literature, and the Sunnah. Sunnah, maybe I'm mispronouncing it. So here are the three. The Quran, that's the highest authority. It exists eternally in tablets in heaven. They believe it's the inerrant word of God, and it's actually an expression of God himself. Then Hadith literature is written traditions that record what Muhammad said or did or approved of. Not quite on a par with the Quran, but really important. Uh, The third one is the Sunnah. That's the behavior of the life of Muhammad. That's to act as an example of the right living. So any claims about Islam have to be based on these sources to be considered reliable. Okay, so let me pick up with some of the questions. Here's a key one, huh? Do Muslims and Christians worship the same God? And you hear that a lot. Uh, One of our presidents, past presidents, once said, I believe that 
God that the Muslims pray to is the same God that I pray to. After all, we all came from Abraham. And that's kind of the same thinking. Hey, we're part of what they call the Abrahamic religions, or they'll say we're all monotheists. Well, all right, but if Allah and Yahweh are identical, they'd have to have the same properties. In other words, everything true about Allah had would have to be true about Yahweh, then they're the same God. But Alan points out the, the God of Islam, the God of Christianity, are not the same. Allah is Unitarian. Yahweh is Trinitarian. Allah is unknowable. Yahweh is knowable. Allah is transcendent. He's separate from his creation. And that's true for Yahweh. He's transcendent as well. But he's also eminent. He's present within his creation. Now, of course, another difference has to do with Jesus. The Bible says, is God. Muslims don't buy into that. So you can't really reconcile the two characterizations of God. They're not worshiping the same God. Here's another question. What does Islam say about women? And many Muslims have been reporting on shows and all again that they think Islam treats women as equal to men. Well, authoritative Islamic sources don't tell that. They paint a different picture. Islam demeans women. Uh, he mentions a surah, surah 2, colon 282, says that a woman's witness is equal to half of a man's. Why is that? Muhammad said the reason for the rule is because of the deficiency of a woman's mind. They don't do so well in the afterlife either. He says uh, uh, that the majority of women are in, uh, uh, the uh, people in hell, the majority are women. Here's another concern, marital punishment. Well, he says it's not surprising that an imam wrote a book explaining how to beat one's wife without leaving marks. So are they treated the same? No. says uh, Islamic sources often view women as objects for men's possession and sexual pleasure. Muslim men can marry four women, even if the women are still married. Muhammad even permitted Muslim holy warriors to have sex with their female captives. The Quran granted Muhammad an exception from the four-woman limit imposed on other Muslims. And the Quran also permits men to marry prepubescent girls. Okay, well, is that all good for women? No. Um, in his 50s, Muhammad married Aisha when she was six years old and consummated their marriage when she was nine. Okay, so it says, fortunately, Muslim men usually don't treat women the way Muhammad did or the way the Quran allows, but this is walking away from Islamic teaching. It's not because of Islamic teaching. So Islam really does have a long way to go before it treats women today with the respect that they would deserve. Here's another question that's often asked. Is violent jihad a valid Islamic doctrine? Now, people are going to quote Surah 2, 256. It's their peace verse. And it's pretty simple. It says there's no compulsion in religion. And that's what they quote. They say, see, the, there, there's peace. It's not a violent religion. But the claim is in contrast to the historical record. There was a short but violent century after uh, the time of Muhammad there where they conquered nation after nation in battle. Islam's expansion was explosive. It was violent. As Muslim forces came into new lands, Alan says the invading people really had three options. They could convert, then they get all the privileges of the Muslims. Second, if they refused to convert, they could follow their own faith, but they had to live as second-class citizens and pay a tax. 
any who refused the first two options had to fight the army and most of them would end up losing their lives. So there's no doubt Islam's early expansion, Alan says, was largely due to jihad. Well, maybe that's just a rule of the past. Well, there are a lot of other verses. If you look at it here, don't cherry-pick politically correct ones, but the Quran, for example, clearly commands Muslims to fight, kill, and subdue their enemies. It says no one denies these commands applied to Muhammad and his companions. The controversy, of course, is do they still apply today? Some say yes, some say no. But one thing is clear. The first four caliphs of Muhammad, after Muhammad, believed that those injunctions still applied. They knew Muhammad personally, so they're in the best position to know Muhammad's understanding of the Quran. Hadith literature also confirms this interpretation of violence. Muhammad's life is another authoritative model to follow, and he raided caravans, he led major military campaigns, he ordered assassinations of non-combatants. So, the three most authoritative sources in Islam, that'd be the Quran, the Hadith, and Sunnah, all teach jihad. He says, well, you hear these people saying that Islam is a peaceful religion, that it's been hijacked by violent Muslims. He says, no, the opposite is true. Islam is a violent religion that has, in many cases, thankfully, been hijacked by peaceful Muslims. Now, the, the other thing that I'd heard is there's something called abrogation, in which early parts of the Quran are replaced with later parts of the Quran. They were written later. Well, it's the early part of the Quran that sounds more peaceful. It's the more violent verses in the last part of the Quran, which means those are the ones that are really in effect. Um, what else does he talk about here? Oh, he says, here's another question. Don't the Christians have kind of a parallel to jihad themselves, especially in the Old Testament? That seems pretty violent. I mean, you have God having them going into the Canaanites' land and slaughtering them. But he says there are three key differences between Islamic jihad and what happened in the Bible and Christian history. First, war and killing in the Old Testament had a different purpose. It was not to take over land. It was not to, to uh, you know, beat up people. God used war as a mean of judging, means of judging evildoers. Muhammad used it as a way to just defeat his en enemies. They always saw themselves as the good guys. They fought anybody who disagreed with them. And, of course, Christianity didn't have an army. In fact, it succeeded through love and through doing all sorts of nice things. Secondly, there is no broad theological justification for war and killing in Christianity. No denomination, Alan says, or school of thought currently exists that advocates military action as a way for evangelism. But in Muslim academic circles, there's a robust theology of violent jihad still flourishes. It's t clearly taught in Islam's authoritative sources. That's why it's still around today. When Christians have fought, however, it's often been contrary to their theology. Third, Jesus is the paradigm for the Christian. He never retaliated with violence. Unlike Muhammad, he never harmed anyone. Jesus advocated peace. And the life of Muhammad stands in stark contrast to that of Jesus. So let me go through those three again real quickly. Is there a Christian parallel to jihad? No, the killing in the Old Testament was judging. It's judgment on evil. And the second difference is there's no theological justification for war and killing in Christianity. 
No denomination or school of thought advocates that. And third, Jesus as the model for the Christian was peaceful, harming nobody, unlike Muhammad. So uh, I, I will leave that at this point. It's worth looking at this booklet because it's got so many other good things in it. So once again, it's called The Ambassador's Guide to Islam. If you go to str.org, str, stand to reason.org, str.org, and uh, look those up and get the ones that appeal to you. I think all of them are wonderful. I've got them, and uh, like I said, I'm going to try to reference them in another broadcast. So thank you for listening to this podcast, and we'll see you later.